0: This is Health Yeah! Your weekly update on what's going on in the health, wellness, and medical world with Monica Robbins. Hi everyone, and thank you
1: for tuning into Health Yeah! Your prescription for clear, concise medical, health and wellness information. I'm Monica Robbins. Recently, I moderated a panel with Cleveland area healthcare leaders and Ohio Congresswoman Marcy Kaptor to discuss access to social services. The virtual event was hosted by Care Advisors, a healthcare technology firm. They'd recently done a survey of greater Cleveland social workers to determine what needs had changed because of the pandemic and more importantly, what their clients are saying are their biggest concerns. The responses were eye-opening. Panelists included Terry Byrne, Vice President of Health Center Operations at Neighborhood Family Practice, Dr. Patricia Lyons, owner of Lyons Counseling and Consultation Services, and President of the Columbus Association of Black Social Workers, and Director of Molina Healthcare Social Determinants of Health Innovation Center. Also, Dr. Michelle Medina, Associate Chief of Population Health at Cleveland Clinic. Margaret Mitchell, President and CEO of the YWCA of Greater Cleveland. Dr. Adam Persinski, Associate Professor of Medicine and Sociology at MetroHealth. And Lisa Weitzman the We Care Manager of Business Development at the Benjamin Rose Institute on Aging. But first, let me start with the results of that survey. The survey respondents primarily worked with adults aged 18 to 64, those responsible for securing their own social services. And almost all respondents have been working in the field more than five years, yet only half are screening for social determinants of health. And an interesting point, is that more than half of the survey participants work in psychiatry or behavioral health. So when we begin to summarize the most significant findings, we can roll up the social needs to the top five addressed prior to COVID-19. Government benefits, housing insecurity, food insecurity, transportation, and medicine access and affordability. On the next slide, take a look at this dramatic shift once COVID-19 took hold. Within a matter of a few months, economic instability rises substantially and comes in at a close second to housing insecurity, which moves from number two to the main concern. Government benefits and food insecurity remain leading problems. But during the pandemic, a new social need appeared. Social isolation outpaced medicine accessibility and affordability, transportation, utilities, life skills, among others. So what we see here emphasizes the importance of screening to identify these issues and pulling together all available resources to address these growing needs. So the Care Advisor Survey of Cleveland area social workers also found about 70% were not notified when a patient uses a resource. Barriers include slow turnaround time and cost and some of the more difficult resources to find include those to resolve housing insecurity, economic instability, food insecurity, government benefits, transportation, utilities, and social isolation. Lastly, almost all social workers responding, about 80 percent, have seen a greater need for social services since the pandemic began. That's really not surprising. With that insight to the area our healthcare providers serve, let's turn to the panel and continue this conversation. So our first question is going to Margaret Mitchell. Margaret, can you share how the pandemic has shifted the priorities for the communities that the Greater Cleveland YWCA serves and how your organization adapted during COVID-19?
0: Thanks, Monica. It's great to see you and um, wonderful to be here. Thank you to Chris Gay for having me. And I look forward to a very informed um, conversation. You know, Monica, I have to say that I believe it was less of shifting for us, although there was some shifting, certainly that did occur. But, you know, when we think about the social determinants of health, one of the big unspoken pieces that um, is not there um, is racism. Um, You know, racism really is sort of the resulting, all of the social determinants are uh, 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 resulting from racism itself. And, you know, we know, its impact and I think that as we saw America really shifting to recognize and experience so many others have been seeing seeing and experiencing time and time again, we saw a collective really understand in a much deeper way over this past 18 months, the impact of racism on the social determinants of health. And I think our organization also was able to think more deeply, continue to think more deeply about um, our own organization, our team, you know, social determinants aren't something that live out there. Um, And the shift of the pandemic wasn't just happening uh, to other people, was happening, everything was happening to our staff as well and the ability to drive compassion, not as a feeling, but as a primary response to how we did everything um, has been huge for us during the season.
1: Great, insight. thank you so much. I see that Representative Marcy Kaptur has joined us. Thank you, Congressman. If you would take your, Congresswoman, take your self off mute, we would love to hear from you.
2: Well, I just wanna thank all of you. I've been listening to what you've been saying And uh, thank you for the expertise you bring to the table. I want to thank Margaret McGuinness in our Washington office who has helped to allow my participation. And as I look down the list at all of your qualifications, I'm not sure what I have to add, except you have a lot to share with me, a lot to share with the country. Uh, We so value what you do and the pressures under which you work during this difficult time. Um, In terms of Issues that deal with economic and racial uh, inequities. Uh, These are very much on the minds of many members of Congress. We're trying to write bills that reflect that in all of our uh, respective areas. And um, just know that in terms of the mental health of the American people, this is a very deep concern of mine. And we are working on a bipartisan basis. Nobody ever reports about it because it's not sensational, but we are working on a mental health crisis response act, Uh, members from both sides of the aisle, I've never seen this much interest in the Congress uh, to deal with issues that are quite complex um, where we don't have medical answers many times and uh, how to diagnose, treat, house, and help to skill up individuals who are being left along the sidelines. The pandemic has made it much more difficult as you know And you as a profession in each of your responsibilities knows the shortages uh, of personnel that we experience. And we are addressing the issue in our conversations in Congress about how to incentivize employment in these really critical fields. We believe we are about 100,000 psychiatrists short in the country. We look at the pay disparities involved in individuals who would graduate in those fields, advanced psychiatric nursing extremely short. Um, How do we pay for this? How do we help these individuals serve our community? I even talked with the head of the U.S. military about this about a week ago on what the Department of Defense could do to help relieve student loans, for example, of those who had specialties in these fields. So I'm very open uh, to ideas in that regard. I'm interested in knowing how the American Rescue Plan, which has all kinds of incentives for health insurance, uh, assistance to localities, assistance to hospitals, assistance to school systems, assistance to food banks, etc how you are seeing it um, uh, work out in your regions of the country, whatever part of Ohio uh, that you represent or if you've worked elsewhere I'm very my ears are open today uh, to hear uh, what you are seeing because I think the social determinants of health are absolutely primary and uh, we know the outcomes are, so much less um, uh, good for individuals who come from families where the mothers have not had good nutrition, uh, where circumstance leads to um, brains not developing for our young people. And once they come into school, uh, we see what happens when they can't learn as quickly as other children do. So what you're getting into is really a terribly important to us and if you could do some kind of a summary as a result of your convening today that we could make available to elected officials across the region so that we could actualize uh, and perfect legislation uh, and decisions we're making at the administrative level that would I think would be of, of great benefit. But I'm here to answer questions and just know that I care very much about what you are uh, discussing today and we have tremendous medical assets in this part of the country The question is, how well are we able to lead people in need of care to them? And I still see great gaps there uh, where as hard as you're trying and as hard as we're trying, there are a lot of people that just fall by the wayside and are quite difficult. I'll end with one story. I had a call from one of my sheriffs who said, Marcy, here's my problem. I need a new jail. I actually need a treatment center. He said, 40% of the people in my facility are mentally ill and drug addicted what do I do? That is a story of sheriffs across our state who have a population that honestly they weren't trained to deal with. Um, and we need to think about better ways to intervene to prevent uh, those who have uh, social challenges of one and behavioral challenges of one kind or another. Identify them early in the schools. We need to get school nurses back in schools and um, to refer those children to care early on and then try to help them as they age uh, to perform better uh, in high school uh, and hopefully to avoid some of what we're seeing in jails across the state. But I would hope that you would add to your panel list at some time, uh, the sheriff's representatives from across our region. I think it would be a great insight uh, for all of us, and they would be important voices to listen to. So thank you so very, very much, and I look forward to your comments.
1: Representative Capter. I'm, I'm so glad you're here, and I also am very glad you brought up the American Rescue Plan. While I have you, can you highlight some of the provisions that will help eliminate barriers to social services for those in need?
2: All right. Well, the act is quite long, and uh, what's happened in Ohio, Ohio is the state of Ohio was actually allocated 5.5 billion dollars. That's with a B uh, from that act, and decisions are being made as we speak by the governor, by the state legislature, and it's very important for organizations to be in touch with your state representatives and senators. One of the most painful parts about being a member of Congress is you vote for funding and then you give it away, and. you're not responsible for distributing it. It goes by formula uh, to the various states, the congressional district that I represent out of all of the 435 house districts, ranks 410 in terms of median household income. If you, it's really shocking across our region. So we have great need in this area and we should have strong voices in Columbus Uh, and the institutions you represent should band together like a necklace and you should make your voices heard of those who will be making decisions on where those dollars are to be expended. There are some guidelines provided at the federal level uh, for the use of those dollars. The same is true in your counties and in your cities. Literally millions, hundreds of millions of dollars have been allocated to the counties in the district, Cuyahoga, Lorraine, Erie, Ottawa and Lucas, and to their respective communities, the cities and towns in those regions. And most city councils and mayors are having meetings, they're thinking about what to do with these funds, but you need to be organized, preferably as a group rather than individually, and making recommendations to the mayors, the city councils, the uh, county executives, the county governments in these places, uh, the elected officials, in those uh, communities, because they have been distributed to those localities. And we have received a very healthy uh, allocation at both the state level and and regionally. So there's no question, we don't have to talk about the need, we know it's there. The question is, how are they going to expend those dollars? Now, um, Margaret, I don't know if she's on the line or not, but she probably has a list of the priorities uh, that have been designated by the um, a Department of Treasury for the expenditure of those dollars. And communities will be um, monitored in terms of their choices. So they're not like pushing the money out the door tomorrow because they want to make sure that it's pandemic related, that they meet real need, that they don't substitute uh, expenditures that they were going to make anyway. Uh, there are uh, very strict guidelines, but many of you are dealing with individuals who've been impacted by COVID in one way or another, and uh, a large share of those dollars can be expended in that regard. Uh, I also wanted to say to you, at the same time as you look at those dollars, do not forget about the other funds that come from the federal government, simple one example, community development, block grant monies, that are coming to your cities right now. And one of the things that that has happened is that People are forgetting because they're looking at this sort of extra money that's coming in because of the pandemic and forgetting about testifying before your local governments to receive the regular allocations of funding uh, that come in. So uh, look upon that as the cake. This ample frosting we've put on the cake uh, needs to be applied for in the communities and the organizations that are listening uh, to this broadcast today. and uh, But there are some guidelines for how those funds should be spent. And I would just encourage you, we can get that out to you uh, and put it on the um, uh, email chain associated with this broadcast, if that, if that
3: can help.
1: Great points. Thank you so much. Uh, let's move on with our panel. Uh, this next question is for Dr. Michelle Medina. A lot of people have discussed vaccine skepticism among minority communities, but is access also
4: an issue and how are health systems addressing it? Yeah, that's absolutely true. So hi, Monica. Good afternoon. Nice to see you again. And thank you to the Care Advisors team for organizing this and for the invitation. So you and I have talked about this before, right? If if there's anything that the pandemic has shown us, it has highlighted the things that we do well, but also highlighted and placed a spotlight on the things that we don't do well, uh, including what we do in healthcare. In the beginning, we saw a lot of people come in and ask for a vaccine and really were interested in getting it. And I think we've gone past that point, and now we're at the point where we're seeing the folks who are not considering it now or maybe not considering it ever. And when you think about not considering it now, while certainly vaccine skepticism or hesitancy plays into that, they may not be getting it now because it's not convenient. They can't get out of work. They're worried about the side effect the next day and having to actually call off. They don't have a good way of actually accessing, you know, a place because they've never been really attached to a healthcare system. Or maybe the other things um, that have been available to them have just not been at a convenient time. So when you think about that, then you really have to shift your strategy. Whereas in the beginning, we wanted to get it out as quickly, as efficiently as possible. And a lot of organizations stood up big mass vaccination sites. Now we're at the point where we're thinking, how can we be more direct? How can we get down to the neighborhood level? How do we actually begin in much the same way that we do for any civic action, even canvassing door to door, right? So within the Cleveland Clinic, we've actually looked very carefully at our homebound population and actually asked the question, can we just deliver the vaccine to you? And our team has been able to do that for about 1,400 people. We work very closely with the community. Um, A lot of the healthcare organizations, the public health departments meet regularly. In fact, we meet weekly to talk about this and to use data to show us where the points are where we're not seeing uptake and then be very deliberate about how we go there and then really talking to employers, churches, civic groups, and asking the questions, what are you seeing and what else can we do to actually help you get people in?
1: Thank you so much. And I want to remind the rest of our panel that if you want to make a comment after someone's answer, feel free to pop up your video. So I know to call on you. Uh, Let's bring in Terry Byrne. How do you incorporate social determinants of health in your delivery system? And why is this so important?
3: Uh, Thanks, Monica. Yeah, and I'd like to echo everyone else. We really appreciate being here today. Um, I think all of us in healthcare have always recognized those social determinants of health always affect our patients' lives. So things like their food insecurity, their transportation, their economic stability have always affected what what they do and how they interact with us. So really that, especially things like economic stability and the lack of resources to even just get to a clinic Uh, Maybe I'm worried that they're going to treat me differently because of who I am or, you know, my, the resources that I have, you know, just the inability to get to our clinics. We have folks that, that take several buses just to get to one of our facilities and then the food insecurities, when you have those social determinants, you know, a lot of conditions, diabetes. Um, high cholesterol high blood pressure are based on the foods that they're uh, they're intaking and and a lot of times it's just that they don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables they don't know how to prepare them they don't know how to interact with those kind of things so we've always prided ourselves on being in the you know our, our name of our group is neighborhood family practice so we pride ourselves on being we have clinics in the in the neighborhood and we find that that's super useful to our patients it's really important um, many of our patients walk to our clinics um, because they are located where they can walk and they can get easy access. You know, And so that's that access to the care, that primary care practitioner, um, and they get to know their team really well. So a small clinic where they really know their team really well has been really successful for us. Um, we On the economic side, we'll take, any, we'll take anybody that walks in our door. Uh, and it didn't matter whether they were patients or not, um, they were allowed to come in and get uh, fresh fruits and vegetables in any of our clinics.
1: All right, um, Dr. Lyons, let's move on to you. The pandemic has shown a light on healthcare disparities. Can you share with us what extremes you've seen through the lens of individuals and the families you serve? Specifically, what impact has health disparities played in people of color during COVID-19?
5: Absolutely. One of the things, first of all, I, w- I would like to say when we think of um, disparities that impacted um, the Black community, Black families, Black individuals, is that the disparities had all long existed prior to COVID-19, right? And so one of the things that became cognizant for care providers, for myself as a professional and in so, um, social work, as a doctorate of public health, as an African-American female, um, that these issues that suddenly became very prevalent to perhaps the whole general uh, public really were salient to African American families all along. We've always had the overrepresentation of the health disparities. Um, always falling through the overrepresentation of um, those essential jobs that became very impactful during um, COVID-19, which led to also increased job loss at the same time because of the pandemic and having to close and shut down, which meant that now we are impacting our ability to have savings or the economic impact of all of those things. And so when we think of that, and then we layer on those components, such as my colleague had mentioned before, we layer on that, the whole experience of racism every day and the disparities of Biases and the impact of those things, and then let's let's not forget some of the major things that happen with the overrepresentation of African Americans and due to police violence and the loss of lives, and so all of these things contributing, they just create this big snowball effect that impacts our overall care um, and what's happening. And so it is essential that we continue to address these issues. And so I appreciate you asking the question. I'm responding one as a social worker and representing the National Association of Black Social Workers, but even in my new role as the director of the Social Determinants of Health for Melina Healthcare, it's very essential that we understand aggregated data and how this data is going to be used to inform practices as we continue to look at how do we best address individual social needs and impact healthcare.
1: Great points. Thank you. I want to bring uh, Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur back in. She had a question, I think relating to what Terry had to say. So Congresswoman, if you want to pop up your your video and your
2: mic. You touched on a topic that I care deeply about, uh, and that is nutrition and human health. And um, I felt for a long time, because in the 20th century, America transformed from a rural nation to an urban nation, that human beings' disconnection from the natural environment was pushed to the limit and actually a very damaging limit. And we became uh, dependent on food supplies at supermarkets and I shop at supermarkets, uh, but I also grow a lot of my own food. And when there's time, I do cook, but I found how many people don't know how to cook. And then I started going out to the school breakfast and lunch programs and thinking about, the way we relate to the environment. And I had one very advanced um, practice physician teach me that if a child uh, does not get proper nutrition by age four, uh, the brain has half as many cells in it and the child will be a slow learner. That lesson has never left me. And I go out to places and I work with my food banks a whole lot across the district. And I think that they need to um, be empowered to do more than they're doing. And I sort of wish to say this, Um, we need to allow some of the billions of dollars that are spent on food just in our part of Ohio to flow to our local farmers. When our school systems purchase food, there should be requirements that they purchase from local agriculture so that it survives in this part of America where it can survive. And that apples grown in Ohio get into our school breakfast and lunch programs, that um, other food from Ohio gets in. And I think that our food banks can be a driver in this. In addition to that, our children need to learn how to cook. They need to be taught Believe it or not, we have thousands of people that do not know what a cup is. They do not know how to make a biscuit. They don't know how to make fresh soup for themselves, nutritious soup. And what I have found is truly disturbing. And we can't be a society that only lives on fast food the head of the US Department of Defense, now the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff told me, I said, what percentage of the American youth are qualified to even apply to the military? He goes, 29%. They are neither physically, nor mentally, nor socially, nor academically ready to enter the military. I said, 29%. I said, to me, that's a failing nation. I'm sorry to give you the serious message this morning. But food has something to do with it. And being close to nature has something to do with it. So I applaud Ohio City. I applaud gardens that exist in places like Brooklyn. I applaud farmers' markets that are coming into Cam's Corners and many places uh, in uh, and Riddall and organizations that are trying to bring food production closer to people. We have to come to a new horizon in this 21st century. We have technologies that now permit us to raise shrimp in the city. We have technologies that help us to be able to produce good fruits and vegetables next to public housing and involve the people who live in those buildings in that task. We have a way of improving people's outcomes, but we aren't applying them. So the issue of nutrition uh, all the way up, from the neighborhood where you live, to the place where you work, to the organizations we have in place that could be supporting local agriculture through the contracts they let, including school systems, is extremely important. And using your combined power to help educate children about how to cook. I went to one group of sixth graders. They were making spaghetti. They were taking it home for the weekend because they knew they wouldn't have food on the weekend. This is a major priority for us as a region, because when you're not healthy and you're not eating the right foods, you become part of the majority that is not qualified to even consider entering the US military. Think about that. So um, um, I I wanted to put that on the table. Yes, in the bill we just passed, we include um, healthcare access for mothers. We also included in the American Rescue Plan, we triple the value of supplemental assistance uh, for women Uh, infants and children under the WIC program. That doesn't mean they know how to cook or they'll buy the right things. Uh, We extend uh, that new mothers, infants and children have access to more healthy foods and we extend the 15% benefit increase in the supplemental nutrition assistance program SNAP through the end of September. But do not assume people know how to cook. What if people don't know what eggplant is? What if they don't know what zucchini is? What if they don't know that carrots actually can come fresh, not just in a can or frozen? Uh, we have to think about nutrition and health and the issues that you deal with every day. Thank you for letting me say that uh, because it is a major concern across this region.
1: Thank you, Representative Captor. All right, let's move on uh, to Lisa Weitzman. We talk about constricted access to social services for communities as a whole. In other forums, we talk about the fact that an increasing percentage of our populations are older adults. So what do we see when we apply the lens of access to the aging population and how does a lack of access specifically impact the older adults that you've been seeing, Lisa? Thank you so
6: much. Thank you to CARE Advisors for having me today. And thank you for raising this very important issue around older adults. We're so encourage that they are a part of this conversation. And so I think when we think about the social determinants of health and we think about older adults and aging, it's important to think about age being a second layer within this conversation. It's that layer that compounds and magnifies the complications of all of the social determinants of health factors that we talk about on this this panel today. So as we look at the life of an older adult, we realize that they have lived a life of needs that have perhaps never been met. And particularly intrinsic to aging within low-income communities is the generational impact of the social determinants of health not being adequately addressed. So when health issues aren't diagnosed, addressed, or treated from early childhood onward, the impact of this accumulates over time and often comes to the fore during an older adult's later years. So, if we think about the issue of lack of access to healthcare, it can start from the lack of their mothers having access to prenatal care, the the lack of appropriate pediatric care, regular well visits, access to standard uh, healthcare screenings as they age, and whatnot. And so, by the time they might actually get into the healthcare system, they have a history of healthcare needs not being met across the lifespan. And thus, they become far more chronically ill, and much more expensive patients for all of us. And I think the other thing that's important to think about is that when people are conditioned to not having access over time, they become, in essence, invisible. And when we do not see them, we don't recognize that they have needs that require community attention, and therefore our community services are ill-equipped to respond to them. And so this historic lack of access access for older adults means that we are often unprepared to meet their needs today.
1: Uh, Dr. Pruszynski,
6: we've been discussing
1: social determinants of health and the social worker survey results that we shared earlier revealed a shift in priorities during the pandemic. In your experience, which social determinants of health should we address first? We've heard about food insecurity being a major one, but what, in your opinion, are the most urgent that we need to tackle first?
7: Thanks for this question, Monica. Um, and thanks, I'm really honored to, to join this group of, of distinguished experts. I think, unfortunately, the answer to that question is somewhat complicated, and the way that I would frame my response is just that uh, public health is, is hyper local, so that the needs in a particular community or in a particular family end up being the most urgent. So for the family that's only facing food insecurity, food insecurity is their most urgent need. And for the family that has no transportation um, to work or uh, that's facing eviction, those are their most urgent needs. So I think one of the most important strategies is really to do really what Congresswoman kept was talking about, which is to be responsive to the needs in particular communities that particular families have and make sure that already legislated resources in particular are getting linked and freed up to the folks who most need them. I think that is, that is just, just a really sort of critical set of steps. And one example, I think there are some great examples of uh, at the policy level recently. Certainly, the child tax credit is in a, a sort of amazing benefit that is going to address multiple social needs in multiple communities across. So it's sort of a broad swath policy. But another example um, is the digital divide. So that you know, in the city of Cleveland, we have more than 50,000 households that have no internet in their home of any kind, not on their, you know, not a wire line to the home, no mobile data plan. And for those folks, that serves as a sort of super social determinant of health and that it creates barriers to unlocking resources at multiple levels, whether it's scheduling an appointment for a COVID-19 vaccination, whether it's scheduling a checkup for a child, whether it's finding out when the next food pantry day is open in their community. All of those resources are unlocked by having internet access and knowing how to use it. And this is another example where we have some good policy under the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, which provides many of those households in Cleveland with a $50 per month sort of temporary subsidy so that they can have internet access. But there are some other gaps still present there Some families may not have a device, they may not have have the digital skills to be able to use those things. So I think that really my answer summed up is that we need to think carefully about the needs of particular families in particular communities and prioritize those needs of highest needs both within communities but also across our communities because they, they, they cross so many many different components and you know my last example here would be that in a family that is is struggling with something like intimate partner violence maybe they don't have food insecurity maybe they have a family car maybe they're not at risk of being evicted but if there's violence in their family that is imminently the most important need that they have right now so that this holistic view that really sort of uh prioritizes the needs across our communities that sometimes are a little bit different and and doesn't sort of devalue folks for having one set of needs or another set of needs and comes at this with a really sort of open holistic view that that is meeting people where they are and addressing their needs.
1: Thank you Dr. Perzinski. Um, all right we have a few questions uh from our audience I, I want to get to and congresswoman they are both for you so if you want to unmute uh we'll ask these first. So um, Adrian was very happy that you brought up the uh, Riddall Urban Farm, um, which her organization provides philanthropic support for. She's curious though, can you speak more about federal funding opportunities for organizations that connect nutrition
2: to mental health support such as Riddall? You're talking about a very difficult connect that I have tried to connect throughout my entire career by changing part of the focus of the United States Department of Agriculture and the state of Ohio's Department of Agriculture. As the name agriculture indicates, generally agriculture in past centuries was thought about something you did far away from the city. Well, technology and knowledge has changed that. We can do so much in places that are close in to where people actually live. And over time, what happened politically, tremendous power, political power and money accrued to the countryside through the US Department of Agriculture and follow on here in Ohio. And Ohio State University, which is the land grant in Ohio that was originally designated to work, works mainly in the countryside. They have some extension agents in our counties if the county chooses to help fund a few agents, maybe one, maybe two, but it's very minor. And the cities were subjected to and received through an alliance of well-intentioned people along with the supermarkets stamps, either in hard form in the past or electronic benefits transfers. The countryside received knowledge. They received, how do you grow tomatoes? They received, how do you work with the soil? They received the best information in the world about how production can happen. The cities didn't receive that. The cities didn't really receive nutrition assistance. Well, we fund meals to be cooked in the schools, but we don't teach children how to do it nine times out of 10. We don't do gardens in the schools. There should be gardens in every school. That should be part of the curriculum botany should be part of the curriculum it isn't um so what you, you see this huge urban rural divide where the stamps in ebt and uh, uh wic programs go and you go buy something but we've lost the survivability training that previous generations possessed i think that is a problem in this country and our hospital systems will attest to it. The average child in our country spends seven to eight hours in front of a blue screen every day. They are not healthy. The pandemic has made it worse, although people have been walking around their neighborhoods more, and that's a good thing. They've been going to the parks more, and that's a good thing. Hopefully they'll be planting trees and doing some other things that will help from Cleveland, which was known as Forest City, uh, and get a little closer to, to nature. What I've been trying to do is get the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and we've passed legislation to create an urban agriculture department at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I could give an hour speech on this. And it shouldn't be this hard. And so what we've done is we're doing a couple things, providing funding to places that want to advance urban agriculture, and then working to create new technologies that work in the city. And uh, we've sent every name we had from Ohio to serve on an advisory committee to the U.S. Department of Agriculture on how best to run this office as we continue to increase funding for it. Um, The uh, other piece of this that is really important to think about is the uh, money that is spent by the school systems, by the area offices on aging, by any publicly supported entity that feeds people Those And our food banks, if they could contract with local farmers within a 10 mile, 20 mile uh, surrounding the major cities and encourage production in town, in hoop houses and other new technologies that we have uh, developed to produce food in cities like Riddall is doing, we will transform people's lives close to home. We can do this. We can do hydroponics, other forms of agriculture can do so much, but we have to train up urban people. A miracle happened, Central States, which is a historically black institution in Ohio, got a designation as a land grant institution. So Ohio not only has Ohio State, we have Central States. And I think people who have connections to Central States should pay attention because I think that this institution could transform urban life here in Ohio. Ohio State, all due respect to Ohio State, God bless them, right? They wanna get rid of central states land grant designation. I see Patricia smiling. Keep smiling, uh, yes, Patricia.
5: Yes, I am, Councilor Congresswoman. Okay. I am smiling. <clears throat> as a graduate of Wilberforce, and actually this is how I came to Ohio as a transplant from Chicago. So okay. I'm so pleased to hear you talk about Central States land grant, because one of the things that uh, historically we know is that African-American people of color farm too, but we also know the disparities that impact the access to supplies, to material, to the resources to do those things. So so happy to hear um, you talk about that. And I'm very committed as an alum of Wilberforce University and my family who graduated from Central State. So oh, I am very, very pleased to hear that um, and we will continue to work in, the, in that, that sphere. But yes, understanding that whole push to get the technology, to improve the access, um, to leverage the equitable access across the board so that community, urban communities, rural communities, people of color, no matter where we are in whatever space we are residing in, have access and the ability to participate in that same likewise uh, care.
2: And imagine if the Second Harvest Food Bank in Cleveland and mm-hmm. other places, I don't want to exclude any of my counties here, I'm not sure how <laughs> many are on, but but because you're a leader city, people pay attention right. to what happens in Cleveland, all right? So imagine if you could get Second Harvest empowered to contract for food production inside of Cleveland. Imagine if the school system could do that, to take the billions of dollars that are expended on food in this region and put more of that growing power back in the hands of people who actually live in the cities, okay? It's possible with new technology to do that. Our feeding kitchens, we have to turn it inside out. And I'll end with this statement and um, I pay so much attention to this. My progress has been slow because you're trying to change an animal that was invented two centuries ago, the Department of Agriculture. But the new chairman of the House Agriculture Committee is from Georgia. His name is David Scott. He is the first African American in over two centuries to become the chairman of the Agriculture Committee in Washington. And his first, I went up to him, I said, David, I am so excited for you. I am so happy for you. And you could feel the weight of 200 years on his back. And he said, Congresswoman, I want you on my committee. He said, but before you get on, he said, look at the movie or the video called Kiss the Ground. And I say that to the listeners here, kiss the ground. That is how the chairman of the House Agriculture is now thinking about agriculture. And I told him, I said, my only question is, can we get you in the cities? You've got to help us in the (laughs) cities. So just know that.
1: We have, uh, we have quite a few questions to get, get through. We have about 10 minutes left. Um, Representative Kaptur, if you can keep this one brief, Brian wants to know if you are supporting the poverty uh, resolution that was just introduced, because it does touch on many of the root causes that form these health determinants.
2: I don't know if I'm on it. Uh, Congresswoman Lee and I work very closely together. Congresswoman Jayapal is, is a newer member, has many good ideas. Usually I'm on uh, resolutions that uh, Congresswoman Lee uh, um, is a part of, so we will take a look at that. I just I'm not aware of it okay
1: uh let's move on lisa wants to know and this is going out to uh, any any of our panelists who feel that they can answer this how can we make food pantry access easier most of the population she works with in uh, the 44106 44108 and 44110 area codes do not have their own transportation they're not mobile enough to carry food back to their homes and pantries in the Cleveland food bank are great resources, but seniors in impoverished areas can't get to them. So uh, any of our panelists want to tackle that one.
2: Could I ask, does your area office on aging not have mobile meals and contract for mobile meal delivery? I know we
1: have meals on wheels in our region, but I'm not sure about, uh, mobile, mobile uh, meals at this time. Any of our, any of our uh, Cleveland folks, you know, Patricia, do you want to I will
5: say that, and, and I'm not necessarily from Cleveland, but I would say that we, we have to think about the way we access food very differently. We have to get very, very creative about that. So traditionally the referral is I make a referral you know, uh, Monica, you go out to get the food and, that, and that's the process. But, you know, one of the things that we're doing at Melina is we're working on that closely referral to make sure that we know that Monica actually got the food or the services that we had um, referred her to. But in addition to that, we all need to really begin to think outside of the parameters of what it means to access something. And so we can also empower the food banks to do a delivery process as well. And so we, we just have to begin to think about how needs are very different. And, and as Dr. Petrosky said earlier, you know, my immediate need is what's most important to me. If it's food, if it's housing. And so whatever that is, I, I think we just need to be due diligence and be very creative, intentional to advocate for families to receive those services that they're in need of.
6: And this is Lisa, Lisa i just I like you. to add on to that. So we, we have a very active home delivered meal program at Benjamin Rose and we have actually just started a program in partnership with Molina and other healthcare providers and payers to deliver medically tailored meals to chronically ill older adults living in our communities. But I think it's helpful as we think about the issue around food insecurity and in our communities is to realize that food insecurity is along a continuum So there are going to be people who simply need food, but they can get to that pantry. They can go to the food bank and get a bag of food. They can bring it home and prepare it. But as we think about it along a continuum, and certainly when we think about our older adults, giving them a bag of food may not actually address their issue. Because we have to think about, are they can they carry that bag home? If that bag of food is brought to them, do they have the strength to actually stand up and prepare that food? Do they understand issues around food safety and what have you? So the challenge I think is to meet the the intervention with the person's need and making sure that those are aligned together and recognizing that there are multiple ways to address this question based on the capacity of the person whom we're trying to help.
1: Margaret, did you wanna jump in?
6: I just wanted to
0: jump in. I love everything that has been said, and I think rethinking access means so many different things. And you know, we could look at it every area. We look at pediatricians, and I always ask myself, like, why don't they have office hours on the weekends and in the evenings? It's everything we do. So much is built around, um, you know, privilege to the access, and so we leave out so many people and it touches absolutely everything. Rethinking access, why, how, who this impacts really will begin to um, transform us.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a huge issue as well. Beth has a question. She wants to know, could resources of cooking, nutrition, and access to food be sent out, meaning she says we at CCF Pediatric uh, Nephrology are working with our pediatric dialysis and kidney transplants to start a virtual cooking group and life skill tidbits 101. Are there other programs doing this? She wants to know. Any of our other panelists have any programs similar to this? I know I did a story years ago on Metro Health uh, having cooking classes for uh, especially kids, and they were asked to bring their parents with them so they could all learn how to cook together. Uh, Dr. Medina, I see you there.
4: Yeah, I just wanted to say that, yes, in in the theme of actually getting creative, and Metro and the clinic actually do have a collaboration around how we deliver services to the schools. This is actually part of what we're trying to do to the earlier point about evenings and weekends. Actually, a lot of pediatricians, including the clinic, have. evening hours and they actually have a Saturday and Sunday hours for that very reason but even going a step further actually going out to the schools and not only providing clinical services but really offering a wide range of services that include mental health wellness classes Uh, we used to actually have a teen uh, group that talked to kids who have diabetes together because peer um, you know that peer setting is actually very important for their learning as well with regards to their chronic disease but i see adam has also have something to add to that
7: yeah, just briefly, I would say uh, the I would agree with everything that's been said already. First, the the there is a program at Metro Health called um, it's often referred to as the VITA program, where that is working specifically with the Hispanic community, mostly on the Near West Side around our Near West Side uh, outpatient clinics. That involves community members from children all the way up to seniors. Um, We have a lot of of Puerto Rican migrants who, and so there are some grandmas working uh, with other community members to share recipes and then combine their recipe sharing with sort of acknowledging that it's not just that the care system that has sort of strong knowledge about how to prepare foods that are both healthy and delicious, But also in our diverse communities, we have really excellent stores of community ethnic knowledge of foods and cooking approaches that can be healthy. as a, as a Polish American, I know that um, you know, the kielbasa that I put together with my uncles in the basement before holidays is probably the least healthy thing on the, on the menu. But on the other hand, the sweet and sour cabbage that we eat is like way up there in the superfood category and nutritious. And I know that most of our ethnic communities have similar foods. And so what we've done uh, with the Hispanic community here in Cleveland, and this is Dr. Michelle Niemer's program chiefly, is to really sort of spotlight those things and coordinate, sort of bring together the nutrition and medical experts and the community experts who have those stores of community-based knowledge to promote sharing. One of the big challenges as a care system that we find is that these types of programs are most often sort of delivered out of the goodness of heart and the ambition of the care system and the community members seeking to address a problem. And it's something that's rarely billable under time. So while we have doctors and nutritionists showing up and we've got community members showing up for these kinds of programs, and while there might be some downstream value under you know, maybe some one or other value-based contract that MetroHealth is involved in, it's actually really hard to sustain a funding line for a program like that, that even if it's having some success at engaging community members in eating healthier, even if we can show say that blood pressures or A1Cs are improving in our patients, it's still very hard for us to find a way to finance those programs under a typical fee-for-service uh, sort of clinical care system. And you know the pathway toward that is, is really actually totally unclear to me uh, as, as a researcher. What's clear to me is that there's value in doing the work. It's just that the, the pathway to making it sustainable is really challenging.
1: Thank you, Dr. Brzezinski. Thank you to all of our panelists with such amazing insight. I really want to thank everyone. I've learned a lot and I hope our our audience has learned as much. We have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for uh, tuning into our crucial conversation about issues that not only are going to impact our community, but are obviously a national and global concern at this point. Please find me on Twitter and Instagram at Monica Robbins. Catch up on health news and future podcasts on my Facebook page, Monica Robbins WKYC. Video podcasts are uploaded to my YouTube channel. Just search Monica Robbins and please subscribe too. Keep up to date on all of your new sports and weather on wkyc.com and the WKYC YouTube channel, and please follow the WKYC social media accounts as well. Random acts of kindness are good for your soul. Practice them daily. I'm Monica Robbins. Until next time, have a healthy
4: week.
0: Thanks for listening to Health Yeah! with Monica Robbins from WKYC Studios. Subscribe now so you never miss an update. And find more on everything you heard here on WKYC.com and on the
3: WKYC app.